Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. I am proud to know Jim because one of the things that Mr. Babka is an expert with is what's going on with the media. You just don't run a, uh, a counteroffensive <laughs> to the government without having a deep understanding of what is going on. We call the regime media. So let's jump right into this because we've got to identify the diversion here that CNN and Fox have done with the uh, the Trump town hall and firing our dear friend, Mr. Tucker. So let's get into it. <laughs> well, I, I, and I, I noticed you, you threw out the term regime media there, and yeah. we're going to use that term. So let's define it right up front. The regime media, the left usually re uses this term, the corporate media. And it's, I mean, largely the same thing. However, I believe that regime media is a more accurate description. And I, I base that on the idea that they are, they tend to take positions that are aligned with the center of each of the respective two major parties, the center of the Republican party, the center of the Democratic party, and then everything that goes in between. And lately, maybe not quite the center of the Republican party, maybe only the moderate side of the Republican party, uh, which is more to the political center. And and they kind of leave out the ends. So if you are more of a Bernie uh, aligned socialist, you're not going to find your views well represented or supported in the regime media. If you are a Ron Paul or a Trump, which I would position in two different places, by the way, yeah. you're going to be outside of that mainstream channel. And it's very, it is very much corporate. It does support corporate. It does kind of support profit, but that it does throw through the basis that the state is the center or locus of a profit generating mechanism and control scheme. And they will always take the position of the state. So I am, in fact, they will always seek government solutions to everything. And so what I'm going to say is that the regime media uh, is in charge of the show. And we're going to use that term very liberally throughout the, uh, throughout the session today. And yes, and you'll find me, you've already found me using it in previous episodes and I'm going to do it in future episodes too, but there it is. It's defined. So the, the regime media is basically uh, maximizing its customer base by being more centric than fringe. Uh, so I don't like to call the other side fringes. Um, I actually think the other sides represent true states of conviction. Um, and I think respecting those levels of conviction on all sides is actually, as we get through the episode today, is actually the grace, graceful way to handle the divides and disputes we have in this country and will lead to a more fruitful result. I think somebody that's as progressive as Bernie is actually very principled. And I think Bernie tends towards principle. And somebody as progressive as Ron Paul is, is uh, principled and tends towards more, uh, to be more principled. Uh, Donald Trump, in his own way, the people that support him, they do have a principle. And part of the reason that we have a lack of grace at this moment is that people are not recognizing that there is a principle there. They're choosing to name call it instead. And I, I just, I, I want to show 
because this is not me defending them. This is me saying your strategy, if you are opposed to them, is exactly the wrong strategy. How does this work in uh, the in the perspective of, of agenda setters? Let's let's begin with that. So there is this thing in media theory called agenda setting theory, and and I can illustrate it to you, and then and then I can ex- give you a definition. And that is, have you ever noticed that the things that you're talking about are the very things that are on? Uh, they used to say above the fold on the front page of the newspaper. They're the things that tend to be featured uh, at the top of of every talk radio show. Uh, they tend to be the things that are being talked about in the national media. And I spent time as a radio talk show host. I have a previous career as a national uh, syndicated talk show host. I don't, that sounds really fancy. I was on about four stations uh, at my peak uh, around the country. And it, you know, one of the things I know is that when you're putting together, I've guest hosted for other uh, hosts, including those that have the daily grind. And I know that what you do is you go and you look and see what's being discussed by the media right now, the regime media, and then you find various angles and hooks to get those those discussions started uh, with the audience. If you the goal in those settings is to make the phone ring, and if you cannot make the phone ring, you got no show. Uh, in fact, the station will be like, don't bring that guest host back again. Find someone who can make our phones ring. That is a, a, a real-time measure for them. And so they are looking at they're looking at what's in the news, Bill. And so you can see then agenda setting theory. Now I can define it. Now you, you can see it is the fact that the stuff that's being talked about on CNN and Fox and, uh, and so forth, those things are the things that are going to be discussed. And there even is a place from which uh, I got an interesting uh, story to tell you um, what CNN and uh, Fox and MSNBC choose to talk about, what the major networks choose to talk about in their news segments is actually influenced by old fashioned print journalism. So in 2000, I'm the press secretary for Harry Brown. And I, I we go into there's a whole great story I need to tell someday if I haven't already about Meet the Press. But we go to meet the press, and when we leave there, I leave there with a stack of papers like this. And what they were was news clippings from various newspapers around the country, uh, from from, uh, Delaware all the way to San Diego. Um, There was a whole bunch of just clippings in there from various local papers. And I went home and I stared at this stack of papers. Actually, I went back to the office. It was a Sunday, and I went back on a Sunday evening and stared at the stack of papers and started flipping through them to try to get a sense of why I found out that Tim Russert at the time wanted that stack of papers in front of them. And I went after I came up with a hypothesis and I called a couple of different people who had worked in the media and I asked them if my hypothesis was accurate. And my hypothesis was this, that Tim Russert felt inferior to the people who had uh, newsprint on their fingers, who could type, who could go cover a story and dig in and be real journalists. He did not feel like he was a real journalist. He was a TV anchor. Uh, the real journalists were the people that he admired. And I and I I called it uh, uh, my thespian theory because the the people who are on the big Hollywood uh, Hollywood screens frequently want to show that they have true actors chops by going and performing on Broadway. They they may be making you know uh, five and ten and twenty million dollars a film, but they'll go settle for making a quarter or a half a million dollars on stage for night after night of performances because they want to show uh, that they are really they have real actors chops. And right, Tim right. Russert wanted that too. He felt inferior to these guys. And, and so there's a, there's a cycle by the way the media is driven. And I'm not, I haven't covered all of it today, but at the very top of that cycle, the agenda is, is set. It determines what all of us talk about. It determines what goes on on talk radio. It determines what show, even what shows like this do, because 
honestly, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. We have to get clicks. So we do some episodes that are more philosophical and long-term in nature, and they don't get as much listen. It's no, it's just a fact. But I put Trump and Tucker, I put CNN and Fox in the title of this show, and all of a sudden we will get more clicks, we will get more views, right? So we are all beholden to this agenda setter uh, process. The agenda is set by the national media, and we all have to march in their tune if we want to be relevant to the, to the show. So what I do is I try to take these, these hooks without do, being a clickbait artist and instead make sure that they're tied into some higher principle. We talk about something more profound and deeper here than just the headline itself and offering the standard commentary that you will find on show after show after show after show after show. Everybody's pretending that they have some unique take, but they really don't. They, they're saying they're parroting lines from various places. We try very hard not to do that here. But even in our titling of our show, we find that we have to play the agenda setting game. So that's agenda setting theory in a nutshell. Makes sense to me. I mean, I, I understand this in, in a way that's clearer now. And it's just about, you know, the Democratic Party faxing talking points to CNN or the Repu Republican Party faxing talking points to Fox. This is organic. And if people uh, need to talk about, we need to grapple with these ideas, how we feel about them. We need to get clear on our own convictions with these ideas. So help us with this in the story of the rise of Trump, if you could. Well, let me just say the, the media knows that they have this power and what has begun to change in recent years. And I think this starts with the advent of Fox news. So, let me just go back in time a little bit. In the conservative movement, uh, there were some pioneers like Richard Vigory who came up with the idea that they would work around the establishment news media and build the conservative movement uh, by direct mail lists. So Richard Vigory goes to, I don't remember who was the regulator of campaigns and elections, campaign finance before the Federal Election Commission was started. But this is the 1960s, post-Goldwater. He pays a, a bunch of office clerical people, uh, temps, to go in and hand copy out all of the records so that he could create the very first mailing lists and then goes into business doing direct mail. And then that, that spawns a whole direct mail movement uh, on the right side. And this was their means of communicating with their audience from the mid 60s until the early 90s. This was their primary method. What changes is talk radio uh, gets released from the bonds of the uh, and the boundaries of the fairness doctrine. And immediately talk show hosts begin showing up on the scene who are more right, the most notable of which the biggest of which and the most impactful of which is Rush Limbaugh. And that becomes their number one method of communicating until the end of the 90s when Fox News gets a cable channel. So uh, the right is now very strong in talk radio. They're very strong in, in cable. And, and eventually Fox becomes dominant. This is because it was there was a perception, and I think it was accurate and real, that the uh, Democratic Party was more in tuned with the media and vice versa. And to this very day, that seems to be very, very accurate. But yeah. now it's like the veneer has been pulled completely off of it. And Trump being Trump's campaign has two stages to it. it there's the first stage that's and CNN is the exemplar for this. CNN goes through and says, gee, this is a real thing. We got a celebrity running for president and he's saying really crazy, interesting things. This is so much fun and it's great for our ratings. And you know what, um, Bill? 
it might be good if he's the nominee. There's no way this guy's going to win. Let's see if we can boost him. And then you're so subversive, man. You're so subversive. And then there's the election night where Rachel Maddow's head blows up on MSNBC. And she says, we didn't do enough to stop this. Right. Because it, it all of a sudden it dawns on them because everybody thought Hillary was going to win on Election Day. We all didn't find out until about midnight Eastern that night, roughly that time frame, that Trump was going to win this election. And her head explodes. She gives this she goes on this rant of epic proportion and everything switches. Everything switches. Now he becomes the most pilloried character in modern American political memory. And everybody agrees with this, even the people who don't like him, agree that the media treats this guy differently. And by the way, he treats the media differently, which is a significant thing we're going to go through in the show. But they have been long engaged in a game. And now they don't seem to care anymore that it's out and it's obvious. They are engaged in a game where they are trying to control the narrative. And we, we've had the release of the, the Twitter files and other stuff to know that there is definitely a, a, a disinformation industrial complex, as Matt Taibbi calls it, where yeah. they're playing in bed together. You've got yep. political people, you've got media people who, by the way, always were a bit incestuous. They were attending the same parties. They were going from one to the other in terms of being in government, uh, serve, government service, back to the media, and then back to government service again. Uh, there was always that revolving door. But it's become much more obvious now in their rhetoric and their approach and, and, and the positions that they're taking. And we'll even get into, uh, in, in, an, in an upcoming episode about the debt, uh, we're going to talk specifically about the New York Times. We're going to get into their bias. We're going to show what they do, how they fit into this agenda setting, uh, the center agenda setting role of promoting the regime, the establishment. And, and you can see it on display. But Fox News is kind of the, the door gets kicked open and Trump ends up walking through that door. There's uh, I mean, I, I don't want to use the term complicit in this, but in some ways it could have been Trump or anyone that walked through that door. Yes. Because yes, of the 100%. setup, like the, the last, I don't know, 20 years have set up on this, like since 9-11, we've been trending in this way and it just happened to be Trump, right person, right time. I'm glad you raised that because I think uh, uniquely here, we're going to be able to cover two characters that tend to get left out of this saga and their role. They are both precursors. They are both warning signs that Trump is coming. And they are Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders. And so Ron Paul comes on the scene in 2007. And even despite active internal Republican Party repression, literal repression, um, which we won't get into here today, but all the Ron Paul people could tell you about it. They can leave some of those things in the comments if they wish for this show. But uh, the li literal repression of his campaign in 2007, he was speaking out about the war in Iraq, for one thing. And then he starts talking about uh, the, the bailout. And by 2012, uh, Bernie's fully on the scene. And, and, and the two movements that translate out of this a little bit are the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. And so let me just run through a quick chronology here, because I think this is a really, you just really hit the nail on the head. And I want people to kind of understand how we got here. Yeah, this is So important. I'm going to define 9-11 as the end of, the, of America. We didn't know it yet. Osama bin Laden won. He's, he won. And I, I, this is a sensational claim, but there was a decision that could have been made at this moment. And a lot of people don't understand this. Donald Rumsfeld wanted to go to war with Iraq on 9-11. Yeah. Right. And right away. the entire neocon movement had been setting the stage for a uh, with the project for a new American century. 
had been setting the stage for a war with Iraq going back to the late 90s before George W. Bush's campaign got started. So they wanted to go back and finish the job in Iraq. They wanted to depose Saddam Hussein to take over the country. That was that was always in their plans. And they decided to use 9-11 as an opportunity to do that. But there were two things that they did with 9-11, Bill. First, they lied to get us into it about weapons of mass destruction. And I can say this with some authority today because uh, there's a site. It's frozen in time. You can still go and view it. We've refer refer referred to it before. It is truthaboutwar.org. I led the team that built that site that was built previous to the war with Iraq. We launched at the beginning of February. The shooting started in mid-late March uh, of, of 2003. And we ran radio ads in various markets around the country. We got kicked out of every single week. We only had the budget to run for a week. And then we would call back the station to renew the ad. And they were getting so much negative feedback about them that they would kick us out. And this happened even in San Francisco, you know, some anti-war right. hotbed, right? Yep. yep. And we were saying, one of the claims that we made that was rather sensational was that Saddam Hussein did not have any weapons of mass destruction in the nuclear kind. They, it just wasn't there. We've only we only ended up getting one thing wrong and one thing hasn't fully come to fruition the way we thought it would. Of all the predictions we made in that thing. OK, so I can say with some authority that I know that what was this was about. And I can also tell you it was very hard to tell that story at that time. We even got a death threat at one point. A lot of people were upset with us for saying this. OK, yeah, understandably, right? lied about weapons of mass destruction, but they told a second lie. And Don Rumsfeld is the guy is the primary liar. Uh, in this particular uh, situation, they basically said they're going to welcome us as liberators. This is going to go incredibly quick and there's oil there. So this will pay for itself. So this was a painless regime change, except we all know what happened. And by 2006, the, the, the Republican Party was in trouble. They had bad midterms uh, on this question. And it was setting the stage for the arrival of a Democratic saint by the name of Barack Obama. Right, who right. was starting to say this was a this war was a bad idea. That was part of his campaign. Is that yeah. this war was a we should never have gotten into it. It took that long for the establishment to come to that position. Let me tell you the truth: the establishment media here in the United States of America actively lied to the American people. There were there was media in France that knew this. There was media in Germany that knew this. There was even in the UK there was some dissent. Um, everybody understood in Europe what was going on. People in the Middle East understood what was going on. Uh, the only people that didn't know were the American people because they were listening to the regime media. And nah. they trusted them. The media lied to us, Jim. That's not possible. <laughs> they were not giving the time of day or any air to any dissenting opinion about this. That they were not allowing the story it? to get out. First time, right? Ever? Ever. <laughs> yes. It's never happened since either. But this is the Not time that everybody's COVID. eyes begin to open because by 2006, they realize the war isn't doing so good. And they start to look back into their history and they go, oh my gosh, it turns out. And this has come out, you know, as time's gone on. This is now the common knowledge. Everybody knows it, right? That they lied about the weapons of mass destruction too. So that quagmire followed up very quickly by uh, the bailouts which, by the way, were the provoking instances instances for the Tea Party and the Occupy uh, movements. Uh, people were watching uh, uh, these people in Wall Street getting bonuses a year after the bailout that were epic. What, meanwhile, they were they, we had the, a generation called the millennials watching their father or their mother lose their job, watching their houses be lost. Uh, they, they had to you know surrender their homes. They couldn't keep, lost pay house. their mortgage. 
Did you? Yep. Okay. And it has an effect on your kids, right? Oh, totally. To see yeah. you go through it. Okay. Now you all, you made it out relatively unscathed because, and I'm saying this not because you weren't hurt badly, but because there were some people that took this so badly, they ended up addicted to meth, alcohol, or heroin. And the sure. beginning of the, the root of the heroin epidemic happens in uh, the current, in, in this area where people are losing their jobs and their homes. Yep. And these young people wanted to do better than their parents. They had invested in college educations and they instantly found the job market dried up. And so they showed up, uh, the, the old people, the old people who were older people who were angry showed up in the tea party. The younger people that were unhappy showed up in the occupy movement and yep. both Ron Paul campaigns and Bernie Sanders campaigns were largely youth movements. Yes. And, and, and they rocked both of those campaigns rocked. Yes. Not at the regime media level, but at the grassroots level, those were powerful campaigns. All right, let me throw out one more thing. I'm going to throw one more log. I've got two logs in the fire, the Iraq war and the bailouts. Let me throw one more log on the fire. And this is the most controversial one I'm going to throw on. And that is what I'm calling post-racial gaslighting. So on the uh, when Barack Obama was elected, there was uh, excitement even on the right. They, they may not have voted for him. They may not have shared his values. They may not have wanted him to be president. But most people in the Republican Party, and I recognize there were a few that were still racist and holding out with uh, birth, uh, what was called a birther theory about his birth certificate or his eligibility to run. But most of the people on, who, who had not voted for him were still very excited because they recognized the breakthrough that this was on the issue of race. And then they were told it's not enough and that they are still racists because they didn't vote for him, because they didn't support his policies. In fact, frequently, the media and the Obama administration invoked racism as a reason for disagreeing with Barack Obama, even when he didn't fulfill his own campaign promises. They would, in fact, Barack Obama has an interesting history of blaming his side of the party even for their lack of support for him. He's doing the best he can, and you haven't helped me to get through these things. I could have done so much more if you would have been supportive and considered critical of me. And this is this has been a recurring theme that that nobody's ever done enough. But the people who were celebrating his election that night didn't stay in that mood for very long when they started finding out that they were that they, when they began perceiving that they were being blamed. Still, in fact, maybe more intensely for being racist. The this term racism has been way overused in our political dialogue. It does not set up dialogue. It is counter to dialogue. And it has generally been not accurate. Even if there is some seed of it at its base, and we now have critical race theory on the scene, even if there's some seed of it at its base, progress had very, very clearly been made on this subject. And what people were hoping for was that this was going to be the beginning of healing, the beginning of coming together. And it did not turn out that way because yeah. it, there was still there was still political cachet in calling your enemies racist. So you take these three factors, and by the way, here's the key point for our discussion today. The media was 100% complicit in all of this, in all of this. And we end up where we're at with Donald Trump coming on the scene. We end up where we're at with COVID and the stuff that happened during that time and the accusatory behavior that was there. The media was entirely complicit with all of that as well. And we are at a place now where people feel more division than ever. And it started during the Trump administration where people were having a harder time than ever going to a family dinner 
or attending different events and they and, and friendships were starting to break up in ways that we had not experienced in our in, in our political lifetime for since the Vietnam War. And now it's even worse. It's it hasn't abated. It's kept going and it's chewed up everything in its path. It's chewed up the politics has chewed up everything in its past path. And the media has at a hundred percent been complicit in this. Is that by int or are we just are, are we saying the media needs to cover what's happening in the middle? And the fact is that more of this stuff happens in the middle than ever before. No, I'm saying that they are excluding people from the dialogue and name calling. There I'm we go. Saying that they're, I am saying that they are not making it possible for there to be uh, a place at the table for people to bring up their, their concerns. Yep. And, and what consequently happens is the people on the outside of that bubble get more and more extreme in their behavior because that's the only way they can get heard. Sure. Whether it's riots, which have happened on the left and the right, more the left than the right, frankly, even though the media would not tell you that, or whether it is uh, extreme conspiracy theories, which have happened more on the right than the left, even though the left ain't innocent, the media only uh, is also imbalanced there. There, there is there has been a lack of moderation in the in everyone's tone because they have to be extreme, they have to shout, they have to riot to be heard. Is the, uh, the we covered this already, but is the Speaker McCarthy battle uh, an example of that within the government itself? The Speaker McCarthy battle happens because there is a failure to listen to the legitimate concerns of people at the margins. And by the way, I happen to side with those particular concerns by and large. Right. As we covered in a previous episode, which we will put down in the show notes, uh, we we definitely need our government to slow down and read its bills. We definitely need them to consider things one at a time. We definitely need to balance our budget, which we will talk about in an upcoming episode, uh, perhaps the next one. Uh, we we have to, these are things that have to be addressed. And these were some of the front and center concerns of the so group of people who oppose. McCarthy. Our regime media is basically taking the lemonade off the table. We just don't have that opportunity to sit down together any longer. Thanks to the fuel, well, sort of, thanks to the gasoline that the regime media is pouring on the fire. Thanks to the fact that they think that their job is much more to make sure that they are delivering the agenda to us and telling us how to think than they are have, uh, participating in a, a uh, national dialogue. And it's so, I, I'm just laughing my head off here because for that opportunity to tell us how to think, then to who? Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into Trump. He's a byproduct of the media's complicity in all of the crimes that we've covered here today and more. So... <laughs> <laughs> I did not watch the entire CNN town hall that was done. Uh, I've only watched snippets and clips, highlights, just like a lot of people have. That tends to be how most people see these things anyway, and gather a little bit of the commentary that's occurred. But some of the stuff is priceless. And what in, what is interesting to me is that there is this high level of pearl clutching. You know, I mean, can you believe that there's gambling in this here establishment? <laughs> we were we were so surprised when Donald Trump came on to do a show that he acted like, well, uh, Donald Trump, this stunned them. Like, and then they're like, CNN should have never given him the time. There's the clue. CNN should have never given him the airtime because it only allows him to spread his lies because they're the regime media and their job is to set the agenda. You see it? They just admitted to it, Bill. It's so, it's just, anyway, does anybody out there not understand this? If you do, comment, but please. So this can't he, be missed. This is so he obvious. He calls the hostess of the show 
a nasty person at one point. Yeah. Right. And the audience erupts. In fact, every time he's irreverent to her or he's irreverent to the establishment, the audience starts to cheer or giggle or laugh. They have these reactions. He's speaking to them. This is exactly the point. So in 2018 timeframe, I'm traveling. Uh, I'm in I'm in the South. I'm in Florida and Georgia meeting with three uh, supporters of my organization. And something really bizarre happened. I mean, this is so like, I cannot calculate the odds of this. I want to be clear that none of these people were uh, people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I, I'm, I'm iffy on one of the characters, but I know two of them did not. And what is interesting to me is every one of them had read Scott Adams' book. And every one of them preferred Trump win re-election in 2020. And one had become an Ovid Trump fan. One couldn't help but be a bit of a fan. And the other was, hey, he would be the less, I clearly can see he'd be the lesser of two evils. And I would say that the strength of their libertarianism went from moderate libertarian or main, you know, kind of like general libertarianism to uh, hardcore libertarianism to voluntarism, like in rank order as I'm going through this trip. Yeah. But yeah. all three of them had read Scott Adams' book and they all confessed especially the first two. The, the, the second one, when I was sitting with him at a bar, he's like, I love the delicious taste of liberal tears. They'd had it. They'd simply had it. They hadn't been heard. So the only, to them, the resort was, we're going to make the other side cry. And this Makes is unfortunate sense. because this is where our politics is at. This is anti-grace. It's about making the other side cry. We yeah. are going to make them cry. Now, by the way, one of the three people I just referenced, he watches this show he will probably know that he was referred to here. Um, but they all admitted that they were like, hey, you know, at least we're getting that reaction. We're getting a reaction. So when Trump is irreverent to a CNN reporter, this to them is like a moment of joy. You're busy curl, clutching your pearls and they're being like, yes, we made you clutch your pearls. And this is where he comes from. This is why he has strength and power. This is it in a nutshell. It could all be taken away. How? Oh, let's get into that in a minute. I think there's one other show we want to talk about, right? Definitely. Yes. Yes. I know. <laughs> we haven't even mentioned poor old Tucker. Tucker. Now, Tucker's uh, uh, Tucker is an interesting character to me because during the last year, he has had some commentaries that I think needed to be said. And they were things that no one else on Fox, CNN, uh, or MSNBC were saying. Nobody was covering and saying some of the things that he was saying. He's giving some voice to these people. And consequently, and not accidentally, very, very much not a coincidence, he gets the highest rated cable show as a result of it. So in this regime media center, by saying things that were not part of the normal regime bubble, which all of the other shows do, do a little experiment sometime if you can tolerate the experience. Sit down and watch CNN every night for a week. Then sit down and watch MSNBC every night for a week. And then sit down and watch CNN every night for a week. Watch all, uh, I'm sorry, Fox. Watch all of these three networks. Do each for a week. And what you, and do it from, start from the beginning of their nighttime uh, selection, which is uh, five or six o'clock on the East Coast. And then go all the way until 11 o'clock on, on Eastern time. Okay. Just go through the entire time. And do this five nights for uh, one network per week for three weeks, if you can suffer it. And here's what you're going to find. 
every show is about the same thing that the previous show covered. The only thing that changes are the faces and, and names. And they say almost exactly the same things. They bring on a couple of guests for conflict and they repeat the same talking points. There's very little variance between the three shows. And this is what they do night after night after night. And Tucker stuck out. So this is an interesting phenomenon right away. That seems to be a key secret, in my humble opinion, to his success. Why he was getting so much attention uh, to his to his show. But his firing opens up the discussion about the state of the dinosaurs. Who are the right. dinosaurs? Right. The dinosaurs are these legacy media, these regime media outlets. We are sitting on a platform right now. We're platforms, plural. Our number one platform is YouTube. And we're sitting on a platform where there is new content being generated all the time. And even these regime media players have to come and play in our YouTube pool. And they get more audience at MSNBC and CNN. And I suspect even Fox. I don't know this for sure. They get more audience off of YouTube by watching clips. Those clips are more seen than their ratings are in, in many cases when they're being broadcast live. And I think the meteor is coming and these dinosaurs are about to go. And I'm going to go one step further. I think the meteor is not only coming and these dinosaurs are about to go, but I think they've woken up to the fact that this is going to happen. So all the shows that are on this kind of platform are driven by how much audience they can generate. Now, this may lead to some really bad behaviors. They may choose to clickbait. They may choose to enter the conflict machine and drive up scapegoating. They may do these kinds of activities. They may lie. They may engage in disinformation just to get clicks and ratings. They may resort to absurd tricks and, and, and do things that are, are that undermine the, the, the quality of debate. But the opposite has happened too. A whole new long form expression has begun. And people, we have found that people are willing to sit on some podcasts and listen for over three hours. They're willing to sure. sit to a long yeah. form interview that's an hour and a half long where yeah. everybody thought you had to be done in 23 minutes. Right. I was told when I first got into this, uh, the first time I tried to do podcasting in 2018, that drive time is 21 minutes. A show can, is 42 minutes or less. It's, it's, it's drive to work and from work back home. And that's your show. You go over it, you're going to get crushed. But then Joe Rogan and others come along and they blow this myth up and they show that there are ways to have really serious, intelligent discussion. And frankly, sometimes the third hour is more interesting than the first. And a lot of the clips you'll see come from the second and third hour because of the level of truth that starts to open up. The way that people start to just say things that they they become less and less guarded as they sit in that studio longer and longer and longer. And that authenticity crushes the scripted uh, rehearsed programming that's going on on the network that's all about either right or left talking points, all about conflict machine talking points, all about feeding the division between us all day long, okay? And the people that are spending their time in that, they're, they're getting toxic and poisons in their head, and they are less social and easy. They can't get along with people outside of their own tribe because they're so full of garbage uh, in their heads, and so this is becoming the new way to do it. Now let's do just hit the business model, which is what I was starting. I started, I kind of riffed there for a second, but let's hit the business model real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The business model of the major cable channels is that they get a ton of their revenue, a significant portion of it from uh, the fact that they are on cable networks. And this, this comes out in two ways. Number one, the actual cable networks themselves uh, have a contract. And they pay, these large cable providers pay these networks a certain amount of money that guarantees them a very high high base, much more than, than any podcasting show that you're watching right now or, or, or YouTube show that you're watching has. They don't have that base at all. So they start off with this base. We're going to come back to that in a second. 
because they have that base and because they're in that a certain number of the cables are in that certain number of homes, they also have a certain type of niche uh, advertising that they do that they're where they can still play with the major corporate players who interact with them and provide them with major advertising revenue. Both things are about to come to an end. First, it's already the case that there are podcasts that are beating out these major networks in the ratings, all their shows. There are already people who were doing better than Tucker was, and he was the top show. There are already people who were consistently doing better than he was on YouTube and on various podcasting platforms. And second, uh, there is uh, more people are, don't, are, are turning off these shows and don't trust the media. If you go and you talk to people who are under 35 years of age right now, you will find that none of them are watching these shows. If you find people who are watching these shows, you will find by and large that they are over 50 years of age. So that it's in itself is going to be a tsunami. So here's how things are beginning to change. The rumblings are starting to happen. We can sense the meteors hitting. And in 26, 27, and 28, 2026, 20, 27, 28, all of these various contracts are going to be up. And they're going to get renegotiated. And they're going to come way down on the basis of the fact that they don't have the numbers. And when that happens, there's going to be a, a civil war inside their camp. And there's going to be, that's going to spill out into the wider culture. Now, the people that are already anticipating this because layoffs have begun, think about being in the classified ad business in 2001 and where you're at now in the classified ad. You could have been a classified ad billionaire and now you're not that anymore. Mm -hmm. Think about where newspapers were and where they are now. How many have shut down? This is what's going to happen with the cable news networks as well. And in order to save themselves, they have only one trick they can play, and that is to make as much of what we do here, all the people who are playing in the YouTube and podcasting pool, illegal make it harder for us to talk, put rules on top of us. That's all right. they have left in their kit. Fairness doctrine, here we come. Fairness doctrine, disinformation committees, or something like a, a two dozen disinformation boards in various agencies. And the CIA right now, as we're speaking, we just found out within the last week, is coming up with, their, they want a stovepipe. Remember stovepiping between yep. intelligence agencies? They want yep. to coordinate all of these dis disinformation agencies and boards that are in the various federal bureau uh, alphabet suit bureaucracies. Uh, they want to stovepipe all that stuff and coordinate their activities. This despite the fact that they've just been exposed for what they were doing with Twitter. And we've learned even from uh, Robbie Swove what they were doing with Facebook. It, it is, they're still going to go do this stuff. So that's where we're at with it. And I'm telling you, like the Restrict Act we just saw, which was the attempt to ban TikTok, but actually did far, far, far more than ban TikTok. Uh, these kind of things are going to keep coming down the pike. They're going to keep shoving stuff down the throat. They might even take advantage of or implement a false flag event, one or the other. They might take advantage of a dramatic cataclysmic event or implement a false flag just so they can drive through a Patriot Act style crushing of what we're doing here. I think the war is going to get more intense. And by the way, I want to credit Sagar and Jetty because he's the one that said what I'm saying first. As soon as I heard it, I'm like, boom, that's 100% right. That's what's coming. Um, the dinosaurs so are, are not going to go away quietly. We can intervene with this by doing something that's really crucial and that's tied right into grace, which is using shows like ours to create relationships between people who want to have a conversation, even adversaries. Right, Jim? Yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. hundred percent. And I believe that this is happening across the board. So Russell Brand was just in the United States uh, last month or so. I, I think it was a month ago from when we record this. And... While he was here, he met with people uh, who have large platforms and whose names you'd recognize, celebrity podcasters and TV show hosts. 
And most, a lot of these people were in the alternative media. And he found as he spent his time with these people, even ones that he disagreed with pretty much on policy and politics and philosophy, he found what he called a collegiality. He found that he was able to have really good conversations. The debates were, were about issues. They were even about philosophy. They were real. They were not merely conflict machine material. They were not merely media talking points or worse, political party talking points. They were actual discussions about what their values were. And that's much healthier. We're, we can just, grace does not mean you're kind. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat. That's not what it means. It means that you're listening. It means that you're fair. It means that you analyze information and look at the humanity of another person. And the media it needs a grace point because they had a job all along, which was to practice not a partnership, not to root for a side, not to advance one side's interests. Fox News and MSNBC and CNN have pox on all their houses. What they had a job to do was to practice an adversarial relationship where they held power accountable. And they needed to do it consistently and with as much fairness as possible. And they didn't. And we end up in the situation that we are here. Yeah. We've we've drunk the Kool-Aid in three different flavors or whatever. <laughs> and and now <laughs> we have an opportunity to take it back. I, I the democratization or the I don't know what to call it, but certainly the awareness is growing. And as yes. that awareness grows and the conversations that start that are based on that awareness grow, we have a chance, right? We can, we can take back the agenda in some ways. Yes, we can. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I, I feel like sense Occupy, you know, so that kind of groundswell gives me hope. I think the Tea Party and the Occupy movements both wanted to have a fight. They both wanted to enter a battle. And I think that we keep getting caught in this rather toxic death spiral where we keep thinking everything's a war. And the state is war writ large. Every purpose for the state is war. And I am suggesting that we need to step away from that war metaphor and instead step towards one that's grace, which says, I'm going to steel man your point of view. I'm going to truly hear you. Uh, I may not come to agree with you. But I'm going to ask you to do the same with me. And we're at least going to hear each other and recognize each other's inherent humanity. And then one step further for me, I believe grace means that we stop. We try to find ways to solve problems through voluntary partnership, through innovation, uh, through entrepreneurship, through charity, instead of trying to solve those problems by stealing money from people who don't agree with us and saying, your money needs to be spent on my cause. And if you don't participate, I think I should be able to throw you in jail for failure to pay your taxes. We need to get away from that system. We need to stop empowering the politicians. That's yeah, the essential grace arcy message. Yeah, we know where that's- Recognize the humanity, stop empowering the, the, the politicians who are fear-mongering and dividing us. And how about getting away from the scapegoat and shame and blame paradigm? Yeah, so I do think there's a couple of grace points we need to bring up. And, and one of them is that uh, shame backfires. And, and I'm saying this because I constantly see on social media People that I know and like and respect suggesting that we can't tolerate this or we have to suppress that or we have to ridicule and mock the other thing or we have to silence them. We have to tell everybody how bad they are. And I see this again and again and again. And some of the stuff they're doing, yeah, I got to agree with you. Abhorrent as hell. Really bad. Okay. Some of the stuff that they're, they're after, right? But it doesn't work. It's never worked. 
This is not how we make progress. The way we make progress is by recognizing the humanity of everyone and then trying to make sure that they can see humanity. And you do that by serving. You do that by sacrifice. You do that by relationship. Relationship. We came up with this metaphor in, in one of our earliest episodes of drinking lemonade. We had, if you recall in the metaphor, we had Nazis marching down our street in Skokie, Illinois, right? Yeah. And we yeah. were on the street. We had a house right there with a front porch. And we made lemonade, invited a Nazi to come up and explain their point of view. Now, is that an endorsement of their position? Is that agreement with their position? Is that even tolerance for their position? No. But we have witnessed a man named Daryl Davis, who is the- uh, I was just uh, thinking of Daryl, right? Uh, a jazz musician who is able to come and sit down with people who are clans people and change their hearts and minds so that they turn over their clan outfits to him. And he hires, hangs their uniform in his closet. And I think he's got 23 or 26 of these in his closet. Real invested relationship by a human being. I would like to know how many of these shame players have managed to put anybody's old suit in a closet. One That's single right. suit. Yeah. Shame can't work. And the other thing I want to say, maybe we should wrap up on this point, is that you, ladies and gentlemen, should be agenda setters. You have the ability to step away from the noise and the din of the media. You could turn it off. You could do a media fast. I, I you do some, a media fast. I promise when you go back, it's not that you're not going to see it the same way. But once you can see what they're up to, once you can see how the whole thing works, you have the ability to step away from it. And you can begin finding better things to do with your life and your time and, and spend that time with other people or helping other people. And you will automatically make the world a better place. When instead of saying, today, I'm going to care about whatever the media tells me to care about. Instead, say, I have some things that I really do care about. And I'm going to stick with those things and continue to care about them constantly. Now, this show is sponsored by the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org. But the other project that I've run for many, many years and been involved with has been Downsize DC. And we had an agenda setters plan, which simply said, in, here's some issues that we're going to focus on. We're going to keep focusing on these issues until we can get them fixed. And we're not going to be distracted by what it is that the media has put in front of us. Because tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to work on one of these half dozen issues. And I would encourage you to pick things in your life that you want to solve and address. They might be personal. They might be your family. And those would be the best things you could invest in. You might be able to do something for your community. And that would be good too. But what I'm going to suggest at the end of the day is that you make the you be the one to pick. And you be the agenda setter. Instead of letting the media force feed it to you.